Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and for the gospel message that comes through all of it. Every passage, every Old Testament scripture whispers the name of Jesus to us. And so we we pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see both who you are and who we are and our desperate need of you. And I pray that 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 will come shining through as we touch on these really monumental uh, passages. So we ask God for you to be glorified and for you to be our great teacher this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we have the very uh, easy task of covering the plagues, the Passover, and the Exodus. Um, let me ask you this. Does anybody need to run, need me to, if, if I got out a couple of minutes early, or you're going to, anybody have to leave a few minutes early to run home, get their puppy or cat or something, come back? So if I got out maybe five minutes early, would that be a, would a help? Uh, yes. Anybody else? All right. We'll see where we end up. If I just go on and on, like I, uh, I've never done before, but uh, if, if this is the first time, if this is the first time that happens, then then you can feel free to get up. Um, uh, so we have three massively important scripture passages uh, or events in scripture. Uh, if you have been follow along, if you have the E100 book, uh, then we are in Exodus chapter, the end of Exodus chapter six, all the way uh, through chapter fourteen. This is the biggest reading section we've had uh, this week. And um, each section is really massively important. Uh, the, the plagues, the Passover is extremely important uh, for us as Christians. And the symbolism there that is fulfilled in Christ. And then the Exodus. I, in fact, think in each of these we see, uh, and particularly in the plagues, we see the holiness and the power of God. Uh, in, the, in the Passover, we see the requirement uh, of God. And then in the Exodus, we see the deliverance of God. And so each of these stories uh, put together tells really the gospel story. And if that isn't clear to you, I hope it will be by the end of our, our time this morning. Um, but I think these, these stories tell, uh, foreshadow for us, the gospel story. The holiness of God, what the Holy God requires, and how He uh, swoops in to deliver those who cannot meet uh, His demands. So, um, what we have as we, as we enter into this reading is we have Moses and Aaron coming before Pharaoh. If you were with us last week, Moses uh, was uh, born uh, in the midst of uh, a dark time uh, among the people of Israel uh, they were under deep oppression by Pharaoh, who demanded that all little boys uh, be killed. And, um, and then, of course, Moses was brought into, adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, raised in that court, uh, killed an Egyptian who was fighting uh, a beating a Hebrew, ran off essentially into exile uh, when he was about 40 years old, and stayed there for about 40 years saw the burning bush while he was shepherding. Uh, and, you know, I just think, I, I doubt Moses, it, as he was growing up in the, in the courts of Pharaoh, said, you know, when I'm 80, I really want to be by myself shepherding uh, in, the, in the barren wilderness of Midian. And yet, um, life, that's where life found him. That's where life found him. I, 
it, it might it might sound. Um, I hope you hear this with the compassion that I mean it. I'm just going to say it. And maybe maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. When I see someone, let's let's say, um, when I see someone who is in their 60s and they're delivering pizza, I think they're not delivering pizza because they enjoy delivering pizza, right? They have to be, and I feel I just feel a lot of compassion for them. I, I feel uh, I try to be very particularly kind uh, to them, and because I know I just I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Maybe they love delivering pizza and they're just bored and they just wanted to do that. But I my guess is that most people who are in their city, and it, and it could be any, anything. Um, and, and so, but life is just what it is. And that's where Moses found him. And it was in that despair that, Mo, that God sent the burning bush. And Moses said, I, I am not your guy. And God said, I'm going to be with you. Uh, it's really not up to you whether you think you're my guy or not. You're my guy. And so he sends him. He meets his brother Aaron, who apparently has stayed in uh, the land of Goshen in Egypt. And, um, and then... And remember, he has the, the staff, and so he goes before the the the, um, the, in the into the court of Pharaoh. How how he worked his way? It sounds like he just kind of knocked on the door and walked in. How he worked himself into the court of Pharaoh? I, I'm not actually sure. I, th- I think that must have been a um, there must have been some waiting or some petitioning or something. But nevertheless, he walks in and says, "You need to let my people go." He throws the staff on the ground. The staff becomes a snake. The magicians of Pharaoh. Uh, do the same thing. They throw their staffs on the ground. They become snakes, as if to say, anybody can do that. Moses' staff eats their staffs and then turns back into a staff. It's, you know, like you do. It's, it's a really strange, uh, it's a really strange uh, passage. And of course, Pharaoh says, who is, who's this guy? I don't know who you're talking about. Uh, they, your people can't go. And so we begin uh, the the ten plagues, which essentially are nine plagues, and then the, the Passover event, the, the final uh, plague. And each of the, you can actually break the nine, the first nine plagues into three sets of three. Which, if you know about sort of biblical numerology, which I know very little about biblical numerology, but I know the number three is significant. It means perfection. And so the number nine, as being three sets of three, is ultimate perfection. And actually, if you look in each of these, if you were to break them down and look in each of these three sets of three, in the first two, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. And in the third one of each set, uh, they don't go to Pharaoh. So, for instance, the first uh, instance, they go to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. They turn the Nile to blood. They go back, let my people go. Pharaoh says no, and the frogs come. Um, in fact, Pharaoh says he'll let them go if, the, if they get the frogs out. And, um, but then, of course, the frogs go out and he reneges on his promise, Pharaoh does. And, then, and they don't go back for the third one. They just He lifts his staff and there are gnats or lice, which is disgusting. I, um, I, I don't know if you've ever... I mean, we have gnats around here, but I've, if you've ever lived in the low country of South Carolina... Um, those gnats will k- pick you up and carry you off. They, uh, we, would call, we call them no seams. And um, it's just a part of life. They only come out, they don't come out very often, they only come out when the weather's perfect. And, um, and it just ruins everything. They're just, they're awful. Um, but so the magicians couldn't replicate the lice or the gnats. Um, I mean, I, I thought gnats, that sounds awful. Lice sounds even worse. I'm not sure which one. Uh, different translations have a different way. But very, very tall, uh, small 
uh, animals uh, who, from the dust. So in each of these, uh, Moses is lifting his staff, or maybe Aaron is lifting his staff, and causing these um, really awful plagues. Can you imagine what it would be like if those doors opened up and just hundreds of thousands of frogs started hopping in here and jumping on the tables? And, and then, I, then Rick Haver pleads and, the, you know, um, and, those, and all the frogs just die. And they, I mean, they just start to stink and it would just be awful. I mean, it would just, just oh, you, just, you can imagine. I mean, to read, we can kind of read past it and gloss, but if you just sit on it for a minute and think about these, I mean, it would just been terrible. Um, the, you, you may know that, that um, scholars of different stripes, whether they be uh, meteorologists or uh, geologists or all sorts of different theologists, have, have looked at these and and determine, try to determine whether or not uh, something like the, the series of plays could happen. And they've blamed it on uh, severe climate change. Uh, apparently there was a volcanic eruption on the north part of the Mediterranean that they said would have caused uh, a lot of these things. And you could actually see where um, if there's a terrible rain that causes a mudslide in the, the red clay that turns the river to blood. It's not really blood, but it's red clay. And then that makes frogs come out and then they um, they die because things dry up and then um, in their place the, the lice kind of manifest or I don't know I don't know but I mean they would so the scientists would say it's I mean it's not God's judgment it's just a weird climate change and I'm who's to say that weird climate change didn't the way that God did judgment so um, but but it does seem actually geologically that this these sorts of things did did happen um, so we have the Nile to blood then frogs, then gnats. And Pharaoh has said on the second one, I'll let you go if you get the frogs out, but he'd be done. Then flies, the land was ruined by swarms of flies, the scripture says. And Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go, but then he hardens his heart again. Then the livestock die. So again, maybe the, the gnats, you know, they were baby flies, and then the flies brought pestilence, and the li- pestilence came to the to the livestock, and, and they died. Uh, but interestingly, it was not the livestock of Israel. So it's, that's hard to say. It seems, at least the way the Scripture understands it, that it was, um, it was a, a distinction made by God, put upon the, the, uh, the livestock of Israel, but not, I mean, of, of Egypt, but not of Israel. And then without warning, or without a, a, another request to let the people go, boils on man and beast. Oh, just... And then there's like watermelon-sized hail that comes down, um, and, and it just it destroys uh, everything. And Pharaoh at this point actually confesses his sin and begs Moses to make it stop. And then he hardens his heart again when the hail stops. And so then there's locusts, and the locusts. I mean, there's maybe uh, the most famed people talk about. I don't know. Um, people know about the locusts. Um, I love it when I see these huge grasshoppers out here. Have you seen the? I mean, they're like this big. They're just amazing things. But if there were a gazillion of them at once, that would be a little much to take, I think. 
uh, it would be uh, as if there were, it would just, they would chew up all the, the grass and the, these Jurassic leaves and uh, that we have out here and just all sorts of, uh, I'll take all the uh, oranges away and it would just, it would be all, and so, um, and, and now Pharaoh's servants are, are, are upset with Pharaoh and said, don't you understand that Egypt is ruined? Like, get these people out of here. And Pharaoh says, okay, well, you can let the men go, but not the women and children. And no dice. Uh, so God says to Moses, lift your staff. And locusts ate every plant in the land that the hail had left. So Pharaoh then confesses his sin again. Plead with the Lord your God uh, only to remove this death from me. Sweet. Pleads with God, the locust, come, the big wind comes away, sweeps the locust, um, locust off, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then, maybe the most terrifying of the nine, darkness for three days. Like, this is not just a regular eclipse. This is three days of darkness. And Pharaoh says, you can go, but leave your livestock. We're going we're gonna to keep those. And Moses says, no. We need our livestock to make offering in the wilderness. And, um, and so then we have the tenth plague. And I, I have to say, I've been wondering what it must have been like for Moses to raise his staff each time. I mean, was, was he like angry and hardened against Pharaoh in Egypt? Or was he just absolutely burdened with, with the task at hand to have to bring this sort of destruction among uh, other humanity. Actually, the Bible doesn't say how Moses felt about it because how Moses felt about it really is immaterial to this is what God uh, had him do. Now, I'm going to ask the question why in just a minute. Why, why did God have him do that? But I just, as a pastor, as one who leads people spiritually, I, I think if, I, if God were to call me, and I thank God because He won't because Christ has come and died and rose again, but if, 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 he, if He were to call me to somehow be an instrument of His judgment to raise a staff that would bring total destruction and heartbreak on the land as a, as a method of God's judgment, I just think that would be an awful burden. <coughs> so I think a, a reasonable... Uh, a reasonable question is why? why? Why go to all that trouble, God? Why cause all that heartbreak and the destruction of this fertile land? Why harden? I mean, the Bible does say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, why not just have mercy? If you're in charge of his heart, why not change his heart and just say, let my people go and that's fine? Why go to all this trouble? And if, I mean, couldn't you have softened Pharaoh's heart? Let me suggest, suggest two reasons that I find satisfying, if, if not particularly comforting. One, the first reason is that God is God and there are no other gods. So he is not going, he is coming against the idea that other gods in a, uh, are, are worshipped, that Pharaoh himself see, sees himself and projects himself as a god, 
uh, who is to be bowed down to and worshipped, and that they also worship Ra, and who knows how many other gods. Ra is the sun god, and there isn't, there are no other gods. He is God, and he is going to show himself as powerful and sufficient. And he is not to be compromised with, trifled with, if someone said. So that's the first reason. Number two is that disobedience is abhorrent to God. Pharaoh was disobedient, and he paid the price. Disobedience to God uh, has cosmic consequences. What we see in these plagues is essentially a picture of hell. And I don't mean that it is that is what hell is going to look like, um, but I don't, I don't know uh, what hell is going to look like. But it's, it, it, disobedience cost Adam and Eve the garden. Um, disobedience cost, would, would end up costing Moses the promised land. Disobedience is a big deal to God. Disobedience costs Pharaoh everything. Everything. And yet his heart is hardened. He is not... He does not cry out for mercy in the face of destruction. He, he continues to harden his heart. I think that Pharaoh is actually, in a sense, a grace to us. That God has put him on display for all to see throughout all generations to see what the consequences of sin and disobedience are. And so, in a sense, where we might say, well, why did God put them through that, it actually is a grace to us because that's one way that we know that God is a holy God and and holiness is uncompromising. Uh, Holiness is beautiful. Let there be no doubt. But it is also terrifying. Holiness, uh, in this sense, cannot tolerate in the least any unholiness. And so... um, it's terrifying, not because it's bad, but because we are. Because we, have, we are not holy. I mean, you might be holier than some, but you have sin in your life. And, and holiness is uncompromising. And so, um, in that light, I think the spotlight on the cross becomes all the brighter. Because that is where God um, paid the price for our unholiness. His holiness was inflicted upon himself, Jesus being the Son of God. So God took his own judgment upon himself, but we see in the plagues the holiness of God. Yes? You know, it comes to the point where Pharaoh was hardened, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. God caused Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. Right. What's... Well, that's what I'm saying. I think that he caused it to be hardened so that we... And all generations after could see um, the the consequences of disobedience. I, I find, like again, I see, I find that um, satisfying, not comforting. Now, you might not, you might not find that satisfying, but I'm just telling you what I, the way that I sort of cope with that. Um, there's this brief interlude where the people plunder Egypt, and God said, "All this is going to happen." It, it is. It he. God essentially gives the script of what's going to happen, uh, and it plays out like that. They, they plunder the people of Egypt. They just simply ask the people for their jewelry and their gold, and they give it to them. And so when we see down the road, they're wandering through um, the barren land and the desert, and they build this tabernacle, and they bring all this gold and everything, and all the fine linens and everything. That's how they got it. 
because the people of Egypt gave it to them. Um, so the tenth plague uh, gets us to the Passover. It is the death of the firstborn, and it is a sort of a mini judgment day. Uh, it is um, it is a, a just a terrible uh, a, a terrible event. In, in this one, Mo, neither Moses nor Aaron are raising their staffs; uh, they are spectators, uh, like everyone else. Um, the other plagues have not come against Israel. But this plague is going to come against Israel unless they take precaution that God gives to them. Um, they're not going to escape because this is Judgment Day. Now, we see, in, and we talked a little bit about it with uh, Abraham and Isaac, that God requires the firstborn. In fact, after this, we see that God consecrates the firstborn and so says, they belong to me, but... Uh, you need to offer a dove or, or you know, something like that on their behalf. But the consequences of sin is that God requires the death of the firstborn. It sounds very archaic and, and um, bloodthirsty in a sense to us. But don't miss that this is a, a, a judgment of all humanity, not just the, the Egyptians. And that God provides His people with the way out of His judgment. So they're going to suffer His judgment unless they do. They throw themselves upon His own mercy. And He says, "Take the lamb, take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, into your home. If if your family is too poor, you can share it with another family. That's fine. But take it into your home for a couple of weeks, and then you're going to kill that lamb, and you're going to take the blood of that lamb. You're going to put it on the doorposts." And the Spirit of God is going to come through looking for the firstborn. And when He sees the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost, then He will pass over that family and move on. Because He will say that a death has already happened uh, in this place. And so every firstborn... So in, in addition, to when they kill the Lamb and they take the blood, they're also to roast the Lamb, eat the Lamb and leave no, nothing uh, was to be left over, and they were going to burn what was left over. But as they're eating, you think about this, as they're eating the lamb, the firstborn within that household looks at that lamb that they are taking into themselves and say, this lamb died in my place. I would have been, my life would have been required, and yet because this lamb died, I don't have to die. I get to live. Now, what about the unleavened bread? Because they had to eat the roasted lamb and they also had to eat unleavened bread. It's bread without yeast in it. Essentially a, um, a symbol of taking in nourishment without taking in sin. Yeast is a symbol. And it's used that way throughout Scripture except in one parable of Jesus where it says the kingdom of God is like yeast in, a, in three measures of flour. But uh, when that, whenever yeast is used symbolically in... Um, in scripture, like when Jesus says, "Beware the leaven of the Pharisees," he means the the, the little um, sin, sinful things that they say, the uh, things that are, are maybe human tradition that that work its way into the rest of our psyche and our spirituality. So that's that's it's a the unleavened bread is a symbol. That's why we use unleavened bread for for communion. But it's just a symbol. There's nothing actual. I don't think there's anything actually uh, bad about. Yeast. I hope there's not, because I eat a lot of bread. Um, 
So there is, as you can see, just a gravity about this plague that's not present with the others. This is um, as, as serious and as awful and as ruinous as the others were. Uh, this one is, is by far the worst because it's judgment day. Um, this, uh, for this plague, in addition to just the, the terror of it, um, God establishes the Jewish calendar. Says this is the beginning of months for you. So it's a, it's a new day for them as they, as they are leaving the land of Egypt. And he also establishes a commemorative feast. Obviously, he's not done that with the frogs. That would be weird. Um, and that, of course, is the Passover feast is still observed to this day. Many of you have maybe participated with Jewish friends or even as a, a Seder supper have, have uh, participated in a, in a Passover meal. But the important thing here is that God, to understand that God requires death for sin as a function of His holiness. And He says, when I see the blood, which is to say, when I see that a death has already occurred in this household, I'm moving on. I will pass over you. This is the requirement of God. So we saw the holiness of God, we see the requirement of God because of His holiness. And of course, the, the firstborn are killed. And there's a cry, a great cry that goes out in Egypt. The Spirit of God has gone through there and Pharaoh finally, he summons Moses and Aaron and says, get out, but please bless me also. There's a, a, a complete sense of defeat in, Moses, in um, Pharaoh's tone, of course. Finally, he who would be God has, has been humbled. And so the people, they were to have eaten the, the meal um, with their belts fastened and their sandals on their feet as ready to leave. And they leave that night. And it says that there's 600,000 men besides women and children. So let's just say there's one of each. So that's 1.8 million people. That's just if each man has one woman and one child. So 1.8 million people walking out of Egypt at once. That would be uh, the whole entire metropolitan complex of Jacksonville walking to Georgia tonight. <laughs> that would be, well, let's just say that'd be hard to imagine, wouldn't it? Um, God lead, with their livestock, by the way. They're taking all their, their goats and their animals and their babies and their it would just be it's just hard to imagine how this is even logistically possible. Uh, I'm not saying it's not. It's just amazing, is what it is. It's amazing. And God leads them by the we know the uh, pillar of cloud by day. At night, that cloud turns sort of lights on fire, turns into lit. And he doesn't lead, he says he doesn't lead them up to, through Philistia because that it, he knew that war would be too much for the, the Israelites. So he leads them south to the banks of the Red Sea. And I want to read uh, to you what happens because they, um, as you probably remember, the uh, 
Pharaoh wake, kind of wakes up and says, what have I done? I've, I've given away my slaves. Get the chariots ready. 600 chariots and heavy horsemen and they, and they, they um, take off to find and they, and they come against. You can imagine just the fear that the Israelites would, would have felt seeing the, the chariots and everything's coming uh, and then the... Um, and look, where are we going to go? Because there's the Red Sea right here. We are trapped. And, um, and I want to read to you sort of their reaction. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Is that what they said in Egypt? No. They were crying out to God. Have mercy on us. And yet, in their terror, I mean, maybe understandably, they're like, this is not better. We have not been promoted. Um, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I wonder if Moses turned around and went, Ooh, I hope this works. <laughs> or just shut up. I'm just, just all you have to do is be quiet. Please. I don't know what to do. Anyway, so he he um it says he, he lifts up his hand, the, the pillar of, of uh, fire goes between them, uh, the people and, and the Egyptians, so they the Egyptians can't get to them. And um, and then Moses lifts up his staff and the wind begins to blow all night long, it says. And then the, the water stood up in a wall on each side. This is not the reed sea. We're a shallow sort of reedy, marshy thing where the people could splish splash across. This is uh, a massive miracle. In fact, I cannot think of another miraculous event other than creation itself, which is bigger than this in all of Scripture in terms of its the enormity of the scale. I mean, we certainly think of the enormity of the importance of something like the, the, the resurrection, um, the ascension. But in terms of the massiveness of this miracle, uh, it was that they walked across on dry land. It probably, I mean, the, the Red Sea, I didn't uh, bring my, I didn't draw it on my board, but it's probably, the, most people think it's probably the very, very tip top, the, the narrowest part. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't a, an amazing uh, miracle. And, of course, the Egyptians, the, the pillar goes up, the Egyptians go in after them, the water falls down on the Egyptians, the people make it to the other side. I, how 1.8 million people walk through, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, wish I, I wish I could. It probably was a pretty strange event. I mean, that sounds... It sounds... But, you know, it's, if you've ever witnessed a miracle, miracles usually don't feel... 
they don't have the music. They don't sparkle. It just, like, you almost don't realize it, and then all of a sudden it happens. And um, I've seen uh, healings like this. Um, it just, you know, it just feels crazy because it was so natural. And so, so I don't know what it would have been like for them. And yet, uh, all I know is what the Scriptures say. And all I know is that what we see is we have the holiness of God. We see the requirement of God that death is the, is the consequence for sin. And, um, and that God has provided a way out for His people. And then delivered them out from a, in, enslavement. Which is a picture of the gospel. The holiness of God is a problem for you and me. Because we are not holy. And God requires death. And He sent His only Son. That is why the Passover is so significant. Because we can look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and say, That Lamb died in my place. So that I might live. And every week when we take the body of Christ into us, we are ingesting it just as they did at the Passover. That lamb died for me. That God Himself provided His, uh, for His, um, He provided the way out of His own judgment. We take refuge from the God of judgment in the God of judgment. The cross is where we see the justice of God because God is going to, needs that death has for happen, combined with the love of God because it happens, His own death on our behalf. So the justice of God and the love of God are met on the cross. And He has delivered us out through the waters of baptism uh, to safety on the other side of the shore. Apart from our enemies, meaning sin and death. So it's a picture of the gospel. It's beautiful. It's a lot. It's heavy. It's a lot to swallow. But it is where we see the character of God and the importance for us of a Savior, and that God is a saving God for His people, and that we give thanks that we are among those He has delivered, and we pray uh, for those who might be delivered. So, it's five after. If you need to go get your puppy, that's fine. Uh, I'll stick around and, and ask if you have any questions or comments. We should wrestle a little bit. Just one that I have never hooked on before. In chapter 13, the firstborn of Israel are spared, but God also says they are to be dedicated to right. Him. So, he, yes. I have never picked, picked up on this. Yes, so after, after um, they are delivered, uh, actually, it's before they cross the Red Sea, uh, but they, they, God says, You are to offer to me the firstborn. It's ceremonially. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes? Something we, we didn't cover. It was Miriam saving Moses. I don't understand that. Miriam saving Moses. That was be last week in the, in the, when he's little? Um, no, when she cut off his foreskin. God was angered. He was going to kill Moses. Oh, I'd have I to look at that a little more closely. What? Yeah, I'd have to look at that a little more closely. I don't, okay. I don't have an answer for you about that. Um, what else? When the, children, when the children were killed and Moses was saved, was that all the children or sons or just the last born? Or 
Uh, it says all the sons. All the sons. Well, I was wondering why Aaron wasn't killed. He was three years old. Well, probably because it was, uh, it was, um, uh, it, I think it was all the sons at their birth, and so he probably, it probably came after he was born, That's that edict. Yeah. yeah, he's three years older. Doors? Yeah, I, I've heard it said, some say that, you know, it was actually a, a strong wind that, that separated the waters, but it, the wind's got to be awfully strong to, to separate the water, dry that land long enough for that many people to come across, and then just some stuff. Nobody could do that but God. Well, if it happened like it ha- says in the Bible, it was a, m- a miracle. I mean, if it didn't happen that way, then then it, you know, that's fine. But I think it, it again, you want to read the Bible the way it wants to be read, and and what it wants to say to us is that God delivered His people in a mighty way through this miraculous way, such that only God could do it. Right? Again, only God can deliver us from our sin. I mean, that that's and Peter is Peter is the one who. Uh, talks about that deliverance, that exodus through the waters as, as foreshadowing baptism uh, for us. So, but yes, yeah. If it was, I mean, it, well, I mean, it says that he lifted up his staff and a mighty wind blew, and that's how he did it. But, I mean, that's a pretty remarkable moment in Nobody meteorological history. I mean, with the water parting, the, the ground was instantly dry. You know, nobody got stuck in the mud trying to get across. If he could part the waters, he could drive the ground. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. If he could part the waters, he could drive the ground. Yeah. Don't worry about it. I'm not questioning. I'm just making an observation. Yes. With the plagues, how come God didn't make something that the magicians couldn't? Why did Why did God make the they they ceased being able to do what they uh, the magicians ceased being able to do replicate the things after a, a couple of plagues. Uh, we don't hear about the magicians again after the frogs. But um, but yeah, I mean, you, when they when they replicate the frogs, that doesn't help the problem, does it? I mean, it's just more frogs. Um, they couldn't make the gnats. So ugh. yeah, I don't know. All right? I think it's a big one. Go get your puppies. I don't know what this is going to look like. I have no idea. But pray for us, and we'll see you there. It'll be a zoo. It'll be a zoo. A menagerie, if you will.